0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this podcast, titled Don Giovanni, Not PG-13, Dr. Susan McClary discusses the ways in which the perception of Mozart's works as safe or otherwise perfect affects our understanding of the deeper meanings and sense of beauty of his works, with a focus on Don Giovanni. This discussion was recorded as part of LA Opera Connect's professional development series for teachers, Opera for Educators. This podcast addresses mature topics and may not be suitable for all audiences. Thank you so
1: much for having me. Um, I am a great supporter of the LA Opera, and it's a real privilege to be able to speak to you all today. Last summer, I met a graduate student in musicology from Harvard. She's actually uh, South Asian. She works on improvisation. And she was assigned to be the teaching assistant in a music appreciation course at Harvard she really does not know the European canon. And Harvard has been sort of ahead of the curve in opening music studies up to many, many cultures and approaches. But there she was, and she was supposed to be assisting in music appreciation. And one of the lectures concerned Don Giovanni. And the teacher showed the opening sequence, starting with the rape, uh, and then the duel and the murder. And this young woman was so horrified that she had to leave the room. She just could not bear to watch it. She then had to figure out how she was going to run her session on, on this piece that she herself had left. And uh, And what she did was she just opened the discussion up for wrestling with what do we do with pieces like this? Her story brought back to me how this is really a horrible piece. This is very far from our ideal of Mozart as sweetness, light, perfection, and beauty. In 1960, NBC did a production of Don Giovanni. This was back in the days when no one took uh, television very seriously and so they could do things like stage operas. And it starred the very young Leontine Price and Cesare Siape. So when this opera first opened on my television screen, there was this young Lantine Price screaming and trying to get this repellent man off of her. That was one of my introductions to actually watching opera. I uh, had, watched, had listened to the piece a lot before that, but I had never seen it. Now This was in 1960. I was 14 years old. And, um, and I sometimes think, did that warp my little mind? Well, a lot of people in musicology would assume that maybe that's exactly what happened, was that very early exposure uh, that brought classical music and rape together did warp my little mind. But in any case, uh, I have persevered, as they say. Uh, But I still uh, think about what is the impact of a piece like this on very young viewers this opera was written in collaboration of course with lorenzo de ponte very very interesting man born a jew then converted to christianity in order to marry a, a catholic woman then after she died he became a catholic priest and then his womanizing and gambling forced him uh, to leave Europe altogether. He fled to the United States in 1805, where he opened a grocery store, but eventually he became a professor of Italian at Columbia University. The first professor of Italian in, uh, at Columbia, also the first Jew uh, at Columbia University and the first Catholic. Amazing. He also started an opera company in New York called the Italian Opera House, which was the forerunner of the Metropolitan. So an extraordinary figure. Together with Mozart, he wrote a trilogy of operas, The Marriage of Figaro's, John Giovanni, and Cosi Fantuti. Now, all of these are very much adult-themed operas. They all involve sex. They all involve class conflict. They all are deeply cynical. These are not straight ahead fairy tales, the way we sometimes think magic flute is. Don Giovanni is especially concerned with uh, sexual and power abuses. There's a catalog aria in this opera that Leporello sings to poor Donna Elvira, in which he pulls out a large book and uh, shows her, page by page, the thousands of women that Giovanni has seduced and abandoned, um, humiliating her all the way
0: along. (laughs)
1: It is meant to be a comic aria, and it's very, very funny. Uh, He has uh, graphic depictions of tall women, short women, blonde women, dark women, uh, old women. And he saves for the last, what he says are Giovanni's favorites, which are young girls. People laugh all the way through the catalog aria. Um, And the comic banter that we hear all the way through the opera is indeed uh, just brilliant in its timing, the verbal wit, all of these things. But there is a, a current that is deeply ugly and horrible. Uh, the idea that you could catalogue women in this way and, uh, and put them down in, uh, in a, a ledger as just one more person, another notch on the belt. In a way, the three women characters who stand up against Giovanni uh, represent a very powerful Me Too movement. As Donna Alvera says, this happened to me, uh, she tells Anna, this is going to happen to you. They both say, this is happening to Zerlina. So there is a, a very strong feminist dimension to this libretto pushing back against the overt misogyny that we experience all the way through. Now, one of the things that makes this a great opera, and I think it is a great opera, is that it is involved with so many very basic contradictions. Contradictions that were present at the time de Ponte and Mozart were writing this opera and many of which continue to be contradictions in our own lives and society. One of the fundamental ones is the contradiction between liberty, which was of course on everyone's lips as we are two years ahead of the French Revolution. Um, we all exalt uh, liberty, both in uh, revolutionary France and, of course, in the United States. But liberty is also uh, associated, even linguistically, with libertinism. And both Christie and Mitchell have talked about this. This is the moment, not just of the French Revolution, but also of the Marquis de Sade, of what happens when you take that sense of liberty and push it so that it uh, seems to justify the abuse of others. In the very middle of the finale of the first act, as the party is underway, uh, Zerlina has been pulled in, Uh, we are getting ready for that fabulous dance scene, Giovanni suddenly wheels around, the whole orchestra suddenly goes into C major, the triumphal key, and over and over again he sings, Viva la Libertà. libertà. Long live Liberty the rallying cry of the French Revolution. So this is clearly a shout out to that audience of all of those revolutionary ideals that are happening. But we know that Giovanni's sense of liberty is his ability or what he sees as his right to take advantage of all of the women around him. That contradiction or that confusion over what constitutes liberty is very much alive and well to our very uh, day. When we see people uh, refusing to wear masks because it is their liberty to refuse to do that. And just this morning, it was reported that the uh, airlines are having to try to figure out what to do about these people who refuse to wear Uh, masks when they come onto airplanes um, and the conflicts, the fights that break out over this. So what is liberty? That was something that was very much under debate at the time this opera was premiered. Uh, It has surfaced again and is something that we are struggling with on a day-to-day basis right now. Another contradiction that this opera faces head on has to do with the emerging of the Gothic, Uh, those ghost stories, those tales of the undead, of monsters that come out of the graveyard uh, that, uh, that haunt us these stories are beginning to circulate again. And one of the principal models for the Gothic is Don Giovanni, which suddenly on this enlightenment stage is bringing back this hoary old story of this statue who comes to life um, and uh, who eventually will pull Giovanni down uh, to hell. Uh, that kind of, of uh, ghost story dimension is something that is extremely important to the pioneers of the, the ghost story, uh, such as E.T.A. Hoffmann. Um, in a way, the Gothic is uh, the id of the Enlightenment's ego. The Enlightenment thought it had pushed all of the supernatural out of the way, Uh, that uh, that religion was uh, going to be not the principal force of action, but that people were going to rely on reason. Unfortunately, uh, it's, you, can, you can think that you're going to push these things under. But the rise of the Gothic uh, right around this time uh, it showed that none of those things stayed buried, just as in a Gothic story. They start bubbling up again. Um, and uh, all of the principal composers of the first half of the 19th century involved themselves very strongly with the Gothic. Uh, think of Schubert's uh, song, uh, Der Urlkunnig, uh, think of the uh, parts of Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique, uh, the March to the Scaffold, which is based very specifically on uh, one of these Gothic stories. Um, all of this stuff comes bubbling back up uh, right after the Enlightenment thought it had put it all to, what, to rest. E.T.A. Hoffman not only writes ghost stories but he also is the pioneer of music criticism as we know it. And one of the principal documents of this time, well, Don Giovanni, his story, which we've already heard about, uh, in which he argues that Donna Anna really wants in love with Don Giovanni, but also his review of the premiere of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. In that review, Hoffman argues that the romantic sublime, by which he means uh, violence uh, that cannot really be withstood, is going to overcome, overthrow beauty. Um, In Beethoven, he says, we submit to this violence. Uh, uh, that is the aesthetic payoff of this amazing piece that we are just sort of uh, pounded into submission by this piece. This is very much like Kierkegaard's uh, argument. So at this point, the sublime, which is associated with violence, uh, with, uh, with the uh, supernatural, Uh, with uh, demonic energy. All of these things are standing in contradiction to the, um, uh, the 18th century premium put on balance, on beauty, on reason. Poor Don Ottavio, I think, is the remnant of the 18th century in this piece. He represents ineffectual reason and grace. He sings to very, very beautiful arias. Uh, He does not really engage with the action unless he is part of uh, the group that involves principally those women. Uh, uh, In the face of the sublime, uh, beauty and grace and reason don't stand a chance. And Ottavio is pushed very strongly into the corner. If there are heroic figures in this opera, they would have to be um, Don Giovanni himself, who is often regarded as a hero, not only because of his seductive abilities, but also because he refuses to concede at the end. Uh, Everybody votes that he he should no longer be there and he refuses to go. Um, The women, they stand up to him, they circle him, they push back, those are the uh, characters who count as heroic. As Christy uh, mentioned, Donna Anna has been a particular problem in music reception because both E.T.A. Hoffman and then uh, Kierkegaard understood Giovanni as the as the life force, as something that simply overwhelms and that one must welcome. Critics have bent over backwards to try to explain that of course, Donna Anna really, really, really wanted it. I gave a talk early in my years as a feminist critic in which I was talking about these things. And another woman uh, said, no, don't you understand, Giovanni's, sexuality brings these poor women to life. They were living dull, uninteresting lives and he injects the life force into them. But it's still shocking because uh, you know, th- it's very clear from the libretto that that is not what went on. Uh, so you have to work very hard to turn this around. Another contradiction that is involved in this opera uh, has to do with genre. Mozart and De Ponte uh, inherited two genres of opera. One is opera seria, uh, serious opera, operas that principally involve uh, the aristocracy, the nobility, and the Emphasis in opera seria is in long, complex arias that carry the musical weight of the piece. At the end of an opera seria, it is traditional that the monarch bestow mercy on whatever character has seemed to be out of line. And uh, that was a way of understanding the nobility always already as merciful. Opera Buffa, on the other hand, is very quick action. The uh, characters do not have uh, long uh, song-like things. Uh, This is the musical uh, spin-off of Commedia dell'arte. And those were the two kinds of operas that that they would have known. Don Giovanni is an unstable hybrid between the two. And Mozart and Ponte constantly swing us back and forth between slapstick and utter horror. Now, you don't find that very much in, uh, in cultural texts. Uh, In film, even, it is very uncommon these days to find uh, hilarity and horror cheek by jowl. I remember in the first time I saw Bonnie and Clyde uh, where you're laughing all the way along with all the comic sticks and the, and the and background music and suddenly somebody gets shot in the face and you're, you're just shocked because no, that was not the contract that seemed to be presented to us by this movie. You can't have us giggling all the way along and then shoot someone in the face. Don Giovanni does that consistently all the way through the opera, and it is deeply, deeply unsettling. It does this right from the beginning. Mozart and Ponte called this opera a drama giocoso, which is a jokey opera It's not the same as an opera buffa, but they're uh, sort of playing with maintaining both the sense of drama in something that is elevated, but also something that is uh, humorous and and jokey. The opera opens with uh, this very hybrid and this very contradiction. The first part of the opera, is in D minor, and it introduces all of the musical tropes that we can find of horror, of the ghostly, of dread, of of horror. Um, These are things that are going to show up in the uh, Gothic compositions of the first half of the 19th century. And this is probably the place where it starts uh, is in that first part. It's very, very creepy um, and scary. And then suddenly it stops and it goes into a completely buffoonish second part as though nothing had ever happened. We just turn the page and we are in a different genre. We're in a different universe. That kind of contradiction hadn't taken place before. And it already raises the question right at the beginning of the opera, what is this going to be? I mean, what, what are we supposed to be following? Uh, the, uh, the horrifying part or the hilarity or how do I position myself with respect to this music that I am hearing? That contradiction uh, between the comic and the horrible perseveres all the way through the entire opera. Um, there is silliness that uh, undercuts even the most serious moments of the opera. As we've seen as, um, as Donna Anna is struggling with Don Giovanni, even these moments of horror are being undercut uh, by, uh, by this comic banter. Almost nothing goes uh, un uh, unresponded to. Donna Elvira's uh, statements are alway, almost always undercut by uh, Giovanni and Leporello making fun of her sentiments and creating that contradiction. So you can try to listen through that to her and what she's saying. You can try to take her seriously. But here are these guys who are right up in the front exchanging locker room jokes. Um, and it's, uh, it's, again, very deeply unsettling. Even in the final scene, where we know that Giovanni is going to be dragged down to hell, Leporello is hiding under the table uh, and is continuing to be a buffoon, a scared buffoon. That's how people of the lower class are, but still, uh, the comic banter goes all the way through even that horrible scene where the statue comes back. Now, you remember though, I, uh, I mentioned that one of the features of Opera seria is that mercy is bestowed. Uh, and the person who bestows mercy in this opera is Donna Alvira in that scene in which she is on her balcony singing about how she still loves him despite everything. And then when she breaks into the party between Leporello and Giovanni at the very end, and, uh, and just before the statue shows up, she begs him please to repent before it's too late. Uh, she continues to extend the olive branch, to try to make peace, to try to bestow mercy on this man who deserves it not at all. And in that way, she really does rise within the conventions of the time to that uh, level of nobility that we expect of opera Seria. Another thing that we have to worry about in this opera is that Don Giovanni is a bass. In opera seria, the heroic character was always a castrato, a man who had been altered before he reached uh, sexual maturity so that his voice never changed and he could sing uh, in the soprano or alto range. This is very bizarre to us. I've written a lot, of, as many other people have. On the figure of the castrato and why the castrato became the leading uh, man in 17th and 18th century operas. Mozart himself uses castrati in Idomeneo and also in his last opera, the Clemenza di Tito. So this was not something that was way in the past for him. When he was writing serious opera, he used castrati. There were lower voices in opera before this time, but they tended to be servants. Uh, Leporello is, uh, should have a low voice. They could be fathers, such as the Commendatore, but they were not leading characters. They were not romantic leads. So here we have a main character, a protagonist, who is, really presents himself musically as a comic character, but a comic character who goes about raping and murdering. Um, this is something that would have been tremendously shocking to Mozart and to Ponte's audiences. Never had a character like this been on the stage with the low voice, with that new uh, virility that is announced in the fact that he is intact, uh, the that he is has not been castrated, there is a new kind of masculinity that is ushered into culture with Don Giovanni. And I think that's one of the reasons also that you have people like Hoffman and others holding on to Don Giovanni as this um, important emblem of masculinity. This is the place where uh, the opera character steps out from behind the castrato and becomes a real man. I'd like to talk about what Mozart does with these contradictions as an architect, as a musical composer. In film studies, we often celebrate moments in movies in which the director decides to use a single, a single camera shot um, and allows that camera shot to go on for a very long time and to move around. Scorsese's uh, recent movie, The Irishman, There was a scene in which uh, the camera went through uh, a nursing home, uh, wound around and around and around, and finally ended up focusing on the very old Robert De Niro. Now, Mozart is a master of this, and he was because he was also a symphonic composer. This was not the case with most other opera composers of the time. They really specialized in opera, oratorio, Um, and then there were people who wrote symphonies. Mozart was a a great dramatist in his symphonies, but he was also a great symphonic composer in his operas. And I'd like to talk about a, a few of the moments where he displays this genius which seemed to me uh, the places where this opera, you know, just simply uh, you know, uh, dwarfs almost everybody else. This would have been the model for Wagner, uh, looking at the endless melody, trying to come up with operas that don't come up for air for five hours in Tristan and Isolde. So also the model, Uh, that Verdi uses uh, in the opening scenes of uh, Rigoletto and La Traviata. And before uh, this, you would have had number operas in which you would have beautiful arias, very sustained arias, um, separated by uh, recitative, very uh, quick conversational exchanges, and then another aria. Mozart works with his skills as a symphonic composer uh, to figure out how to do these single shot camera uh, moments, how to embrace many, many different kinds of actions within a single musical arc. And the first of these is the opening scene of uh, the opera. We've heard the overture. The overture starts off in D minor, then goes into D major. And then we pivot into uh, Leporello, singing about how he really resents having to stand around in the cold while his boss is inside uh, seducing another woman So we have um him sing a, a, an opera buffa song uh, in but but one that is very strongly focused on um, on class criticism Uh, which would have been really recognizable at the time. So he's doing this in F major. And then when the struggle begins, suddenly without a pause, we flip into B-flat major, the very way that Mozart would be going along in a certain key in, uh, in a movement, uh, in a symphony, and then suddenly modulates into a different uh, mode, a different key, another uh, emotional quality. And it is in that key that we have the struggle between Donna Anna and, uh, and Don Giovanni. Then suddenly the commendatory enters, um, and we he drags us to another key into G minor. Um, as he is saying, Uh, you know, uh, you have dishonored my daughter, uh, you we have to fight now. And then they both pivot into a duel, which is in D minor, and then the commendatory's death takes place in F minor. So we have returned to the tonic, to the principal key area of the beginning of this scene. Mozart invites us to hear all of those actions as part of a single rational trajectory. We begin in F major we, and we end in F. Everything comes full circle. There is a kind of perfection there that is extraordinary. The mastery of being able to put class conflict, rape, murder, uh, death, all of those under a single camera shot is something that Scorsese I think never even came up with. Um, And it depends on Mozart's ability to make use of the drama of key change while maintaining the rhythmic activity without a pause from beginning to end of that scene. It's really breathtaking. Um, Nothing like that had ever occurred before. Shortly after that uh, televised production of Don Giovanni in 1960, Mad Magazine published a parody of how they understood this opera, and um, and so they had um, a uh, an image of Donna Anna being assaulted, uh, and then the commendatory being murdered, and uh, and then they said, "Isn't this hilarious? Um, are we st- are we laughing yet? Uh, you know, just sort of saying, you know, what's going on here? How do we make sense of?" The um, the roller coaster of emotions that we are put through in this opening sequence, um, and you know Mad Magazine uh, had it right on the nose. The other two places where uh, there are these single shot camera sequences are the two finales. In the Act One finale, for instance, we're getting ready for the party at Don Giovanni's house. Uh, we start off in C major with Serlina and Nazetto uh, talking about, you know, what's going to happen at this party. Is it safe going to this party? Um, then our trio of uh, vengeful uh, people, Donna, uh, Anna, Donna Elvira, and uh, Donna Tavio come in, and they are going to associate themselves with D minor all the way through the opera. Uh, This is the uh, key that we started off with, with all of that ghostly stuff. It's also going to be the key of vengeance. That is how uh, Donna Anna declares her vengeance uh, in act one. So whenever they show up, we are reminded, Mozart reminds us that this is, again, that uh, subplot, of, of vengeance, no matter what's going on in the party. These guys suddenly pivot to D minor. Then Lapparello and Giovanni suddenly pop up and they introduce us to the what we will uh, recognize later as the minuet. Our trio comes back in and they pray that they will be given the strength to do what they have to do. They finish their prayer and this is where Giovanni then sings Viva la Libertà. He is welcoming everyone here, and that is in C major. So we're back to C major. This is a very long loop. Uh, We might assume, if we're paying attention to that, that that will be the end of the scene, but of course it is not. We pivot again into the dance, and this is where, the uh, stacked up dances that Mitchell was talking about occurs. Uh, The minuet associated with the nobility, the dance with the uh, sort of middle class and the country dance, uh, all in different meters. Um, That goes on for a very long time. And if you're watching the score, you see that each of those uh, is barred differently. It's a really strange looking, almost, 20th century experimental looking score. But when you listen to it, you can persuade yourself that this is all perfection. Everything is just fine. And what causes that house of cards to collapse is Zerlina's scream. And everyone rushes to try to help her. Um, They corner Giovanni and they then sing, tremble, uh, your end is in sight which brings us back to C major, which was the beginning of this incredibly long uh, finale. So you know, all of these things have happened without a single pause. We just pivot from one key to another, uh, and uh, everything happens with, again, formal perfection. Uh, but the contradictions that are embraced by uh, that uh, formal perfection is uh, is is simply astonishing. Um, the Act Two finale again. We start with a party. They have their band over in the corner uh, play music, and they start. Uh, playing, uh, at, uh, trying to identify the tunes that are going through. These are tunes from recent operas, um, and they are playing Name That Tune. Um, so, a lot of kind of hilarity. Uh, the audience at the time would also have been playing non- Name That Tune and would have enjoyed seeing uh, Giovanni um, you know, being as up on pop songs as anybody else was. Uh, Elvira enters, again, raining on the parade, trying to get uh, Giovanni to confess, uh, to repent, and uh, this scene also is then interrupted when she goes to the door and sees the commendatory statue. Um, That scream makes this house of cards collapse as well. Uh, The overture, the creepy stuff from the beginning of the entire opera, comes back with the commendatory in D minor and frames the entire uh, piece. Now this is formal musical control of an extraordinary uh, kind, and uh, one that, that Verdi Wagner that all subsequent opera composers could only envy. But I want to point out that in that perfection uh, is all of this ugliness, misogyny, violence. There's a very uneasy mix between purported perfection and and violence and and other things that are wrapped up in those uh, packages. At the end, uh, all of the characters who still survive uh, come in and sing the equivalent of Ding Dong, the witch is dead. This has never been particularly satisfying to anyone. And in the 19th century, they tended just to eliminate it. Uh, They preferred to have the conclusion of the opera, uh, uh, Giovanni, going down to hell. Uh, with the thundering sound that we first heard in the overture And, um, and with his refusal, with that refusal to concede. I'd say that there isn't really a way of solving the contradictions that I have been outlining. This is a piece that is so riddled with contradictions that almost everywhere you look, there is a yes, but. And um, what I would do is, ex- is encourage your students to listen and watch the interpretation that they uh, witness. You know, how is the stage director working with those contradictions? Are we supposed to idolize Giovanni? Are we supposed to see him as horrible? How are we supposed to see these women? How are we supposed to understand the concept of liberty? How are we to understand all of this bizarre musical mixture that we have? At the end of the opera, the monster is still alive. Uh, even if he goes down to hell, he is what we remember. Uh, he doesn't remain dead. Um, he is uh, then a sort of figurehead that is, is, uh, is echoed in characters like Faust, like Mary uh, Shelley's Frankenstein, uh, like the Demiurges of William Blake, uh, like the horrible paintings of Goya, all of these Um, uh, resonate with uh, this monster that can't be laid to rest because of the contradictions and our competing uh, uh, allegiances to the characters on the stage. And maybe no one is too young to learn about this. I wish you luck as you introduce this to your classes. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.